Well, good morning again, and welcome, 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 everybody. Um, Jason isn't here, which, you guys, it's because of the Mariners. He went too crazy. He has no voice. That is actually untrue. It was always a plan that he wouldn't be here this morning because he had a long work week and some extra things with the partnership class that many of you attended yesterday. Um, so really good stuff. But he gets to be with Brooklyn unexpectedly this morning at a basketball tournament um, in Renton. So um, we have a guest speaker this morning, and um, her name is Annie. And you've seen her before if you have, were here Back in July, she spoke with us as well, with us, to us, I don't know. But I'm going to move on to actual announcements because I'm feeling a little lost and I have notes about those. Um, here are the announcements. Uh, this coming Thursday is the beginning of our middle school group and that is a brand new thing we're really excited about. It's here at the church from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in the downstairs building. Um, and so if you have a middle schooler that you know wants to come, please bring them. It's so awesome. Um, high school group started last week, and I heard it was awesome. True that. Yeah, yeah. Can I get a what, what? Do it, Brooke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Here's the scoop, though. I know my own kiddo had too much homework and was really disappointed that she couldn't go. And group is not a... If you don't come this week, you can never come again. It doesn't work that way. And so um, new, new people are always welcome. If you couldn't start off, you come when you can. A little different than the way that we do life groups here. And our middle and high school groups are intended for our students to share real life with each other and to talk through important things and grapple with those things. Um, but it doesn't require the commitment that we do for our life groups. So right now you're talking about how to friend, like how to be a friend. Can you imagine? Like I feel like I probably need to go on Monday and, and on Friday I could get some, or Thursday, Thursday I could get some, some good tips. Um, okay, so next announcement that I have for you is in a couple of weeks on a Sunday evening, we are going to have what we call Ignite and that is kind of defined as Brookview's family meeting. Um, it is a place for you to come and hear the stories of what is going on here at Brookview, to hear from people about how God is moving in their lives and working in their stories. And we call it Ignite because I'm just like pumped up when I leave. And if you're not pumped up, that's okay. It's maybe just for me. Um, but would you come and pump me up? I'm going to need that. Um, it's on October 16th. We're going to have some dinner for you prior to as a way for you to just connect with new people. Um, if we're going to call it family, we might as well have a meal together as a part of that. And so um, that'll be pretty informal. And um, we'll go from, I think I put, yeah, 6 to 8, and then the dinner is at, at 5 in the evening. So mark your calendars for that. We'll keep announcing it and inviting you to that. But come, we'd love to be able to share with you and get excited about the things of God with you and alongside of you. Um, I have a shout-out this morning that's a little unexpected. Um, we have so many people around here that just see what's going on and just meet needs without any fanfare. They don't need, they don't ask, can I have permission to do that? And this morning I pulled in or went next door to grab something and I saw Shane Huffaker sweeping the parking lot, shoveling all the dirt that came from the wrecked, wrecked cars from the fire next door um, that got towed out of here. And so, Shane, thank you for just stepping in in all the ways that you and your family do. And we just are grateful for you. I felt grateful and I was like, I'm not gonna save it for an email. I'm gonna give you a shout out right here because I can. The mic is a powerful thing. Anybody else want to be up here? Shout outs, anybody? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna say, go Mariners. Jason would be very disappointed in that response. Very disappointed. I mean, he's probably watching right now from his car while he's driving to Renton. Let's do a little better. You don't know what to do and neither do I. I'm gonna say, go Mariners and you're gonna get crazy. Go Mariners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel that. All right. Fire the next thing, Johnny. I'm out of here.
We have a green light currently. Green light currently. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Max. Thank you, my people that could get back there where that thing is. Yeah. Okay. So this is what I love about you guys. You guys are so chill. You guys are so real. You guys are just awesome. I love it. But anyway, what I was complimenting you on was that awesome design work on the renewed identity. Like, it's so cute. It's so cool. I love it. I was like, yes, that's awesome. So my name is Annie Bencheu. If you don't know me, if I haven't met you, I am a, gosh, I am a youth ministry coach at the Alliance Northwest. But uh, more than that, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I got to pastor at a church for about 10 years, a little bit more than that, um, in just north of Portland, Oregon, and really fell in love with the church um, really, really, really a lot. I, I was associate pastor for a bit, and, but, but before that, for about six years, I was a youth pastor. And I met Jesus when I was 18. And so I really... Um, have a very strong opinion about young people being invited to discover God, whatever that looks like for them, being really, really, uh, like the, the, all the hurdles would be taken down for whatever the church means to them and that they would be invited to just discover, like ask questions, like kind of see if God knows them and loves them, because he does, right? Um, so yeah, I've been a pastor for over a decade and um, uh, mom to Max here and two others. Uh, wife, I've been married for almost 25 years. I'm also a survivor. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about this renewed identity of being yours to God. Like I'm, and we're going to talk about shame and how that kind of comes into play and how we need a renewed identity from shame. I'm a 12-stepper, so if any of you are 12-steppers, you can talk to me. And I belong to Jesus. I'm his. I'm yours. So, yes, I, I would like to pray. Um, God, thank you so much. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your heart, for the world, and your expression of that through this church, Brookview. God, thank you for um, just the theme of living loved and, and pouring love out into the city. God, would these people in this room feel a sense of your love, the renewed identity that they are yours? God, would you just give them um, little tools and little pieces um, to connect more deeply with you and to know you more fully and to know that they are yours? In Jesus' name, amen. So renewed identity, where, where have you been? This is the 11th talk in the series. I'll just check my notes. Oh, but think about, oh, hey, that's me, somewhere. What's, what's happening? This one? Um, so think about where you've been and what you've learned and what, what sense of renewed identity and shout it out for me. Tell, me. tell me what you learned, what topics you guys talked about, a sense of renewed identity that you guys been in this summer. Anybody? I'll God's beloved. God's beloved. Oh, yes, God's beloved. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, how do we sit and let ourselves be nurtured by that fact that we are God's beloved? What about last week? It was the narrow way. Is that right? So like following Jesus, like being a, having a renewed identity as being a follower of Jesus. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Two mics now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we got you. You, guys, you guys are awesome. This feels like, I don't know. I just, yeah, thank you. The pull, yeah. Because, yeah, like that. Does that work? Okay. Hi, you can still hear me. Um, anything else about how you've become or how you've settled into this renewed identity? It doesn't have to be directly related to any of the sermons. It can just be like, has there been freedom from anything? There's one more. I know it. What's a renewed identity to you? Freedom from 
Yes. Oh, the penalty of sin. Awesome. That was totally what we're talking about today. You did it. You hit it. Thank you so much. <laughs> you win. And my mic wins. Yay. <laughs> you guys are so sweet. So in the sense of having a renewed identity, there is a problem, right? If we need a renewed identity, what is the problem? The problem is sometimes we have an identity of shame. That's the problem that we're going to talk about today and kind of dissect. I like to start in the garden. That is the first time we get to see shame. Right from the beginning. It didn't go well. Just three chapters in, right? It's crazy. But first, God created us. God created us in his image. He made us like him. Isn't that wild? He made us to carry his image. And he didn't, he didn't just make us and go, oh, that's good enough. So he made man. He made Adam, right? And he had made all these other beautiful, wonderful things. And then he made Adam and he said what? It's not good. He said everything else was good. Earth, good. Sea, good. Sky, good. Sun, good. Animals, good. Adam. Not quite not quite up to par for the God creativity situation, which is awesome, right? So he then made a counterpart, this word azer, which is a whole nother sermon in itself, but he didn't leave man alone with that, with the not quite good enough. He made another man, another, another person, a woman, to so that one, <laughs> they could complete each other, they could be with each other. They could be a picture of how God experienced himself in the Trinity. He could have, they could have each other. They also, <laughs> so they carried the Imago Dei together, right? One of them wasn't good enough alone. Both of them together carry the Imago Dei, right? But they also got in trouble together. Oh my gosh. That's like so funny. It reminds me of my kids because when, when we had our second we were like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad they have friends now. <laughs> they got in so much trouble together. That was like the best way to get in trouble is together. So Adam and Eve, right? God made them in his image. He chose to make them. He wanted, belong he wanted them to have belonging with him. He wanted them to express his image to the world. Um, but it, he, he probably expected them to get into trouble together. Um, and then Adam and Eve did. They got in trouble together, and they have to heal together, right? So in the garden, we find shame. And the thing about shame is different than guilt, if you're familiar with these two terms, right? So guilt is that I've done something wrong, and shame is I am wrong. Do you guys hear the difference to that? So for the example in the garden, when Adam and Eve, God said, hey, this garden is for you. You're going to do these awesome things. You're going to show my image to the world. And hey, don't, there's, these are my boundaries. Don't play with this or that. It's like with kids, right? Don't, you're not going to touch this or that, like the VCR. My, Max, sorry, Max. It's just because you're here. He would go up to the VCR. VCR. Does any, I'm so old. Does anybody even have VCRs? Oh my gosh, thank you. I see two hands. Thank you. He would point at it and say, don't, don't touch that. <laughs> Adam and Eve would have done well to have that little phrase in their mind. Anyway, so, so when they had this experience of sin and when the whole world changed for them, right? Um, as soon as they did the thing that God asked them not to do, they experienced shame. And what could have happened is, wouldn't it be interesting if they had had a guilt response? What do you think that would have looked like? Kind of imagine that with me. If their guilt response would have been, oh no, I did the thing. I ate the thing that God said not to eat. Help me, I need help, I messed up. Like can you, can you imagine if they would have said, oops, I made a mistake, I ate the fruit that I wasn't supposed to, sorry, we made a mistake. Me and this person you made with me. We made a mistake together. We ate the fruit together. Will you please help us? Can you imagine what God's response would have been? But instead, no. They actually did two things in their shame. In their shame of their wrongdoing, they hid and they, and they placed blame. They went into hiding. They, th what happened that God knew would happen is they became aware of their state as humans and not God. And they, and they hid 
And then they blamed each other, or they blamed, one of them blamed one, but then the other one blamed the snake, right? Oh. But God, how does he deal with the problem of their shame? He sets boundaries. He sets really good boundaries. These are the boundaries. And not only am I going to set these boundaries, I'm going to protect you from breaking the boundaries by moving you out. And then I'm going to protect your bodies, which you've now discovered this problem of not being clothed. I actually was thinking, sorry about this one. I actually was thinking, I'm really glad for the fall. I'm not glad for the fall. But I'm really glad for the fall because I'm really glad we get to wear clothes. <laughs> like, I just think that's like a bonus. <laughs> sorry. But God was so kind in his generosity of providing clothes for them. Like, he provided protection for them in two ways. I know, it's really funny. I'm so sorry. But what God didn't do, have you ever heard parents, and I've been guilty of this as a parent, like, shame their kids. Like, ugh, like, you stinker. There's, like, a weird angst that's, like, that confuses children to think not, not that they did something wrong, like touch the VCR, (laughs) but that they are wrong. I know, it's so random. (laughs) I can't believe that came out of my mouth. I am so much younger than that, duh. But God, he, I don't think we, I don't think we can, we have to hear shame from him. We can hear compassion. We can hear, okay, guys, you did the thing that you weren't supposed to do, and now I have to protect you from doing it another thing. There was another tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. So God was like, let me put some boundaries around that and move you out of there, and then let me care for your vulnerability, and let me provide for you clothes, and then we'll, we'll work out this relationship. I'll stay with you. I want to work out this relationship with you. I'm committed to that. God protects his people. So we're going to just, oh, I had some scriptures on the back. So God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife, and he dressed them in Genesis 3.21. In Colossians 3, 12 through 14, I just love this connection. Go to the New Testament with me and hear how he, clo- he asks us to clothe ourselves with kindness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, togetherness. The word unity, togetherness, be together. Use the word we, not I. So we're going to just dive a little bit into the shame experience. So if that is too vulnerable for you, or if you're not up for it today, like totally just count the lights or, you know, enjoy the sunshine through these beautiful windows, whatever you need to do, I want you to to feel comfortable. But the shame experience is really um, universal. (laughs) Started with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we all experience it today. Shame, in order to live, uh, in order to thrive or even to grow, shame needs three things. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. For secrecy, um, that thing that you've never told anyone, that thing that, that you will never tell anyone, you know what it is. It's like so, it's the secret of it is, amplifies the shame. Um, it locks in the shame. That's why John 5, 16 says, confess and pray and be healed. Like, that's, that's what it is about confession, shining light on something, is, is let your brother or sister pray for you, and then God heals it, right? That's the, that's the idea. That's the perfect idea. But secrecy, I mean, I, I have, like, a little memory of something that happened in junior high that I feel so much, like, I don't want anyone to ever know that. Like, it's, it's actually pretty small, but it's, like, a few people do know it because I've worked it out in therapy. <laughs> And if you and I are close friends, you might know it too someday. But that little secret that you don't want anyone to know, that's like a space of shame. Silence. Okay, so silence is another breeding ground for shame. It just grows exponentially in silence. I was talking to a person who really needed prayer. And I said to her, I said, how can I pray for you? Like, what would your words be to God? And she said to me, I don't talk to God. God's got way more important things to do than worry about me. And that, that to me like really resonated with like that shame piece of like, I'm not, I'm not even valuable enough to be on God's radar. I don't want to talk to God. Don't, don't waste your prayers on me. It was so sad. Her voice, like she couldn't even find a voice to even try to have a relationship with God. But 1 John 5, 15 says he hears us. He hears our prayers. He hears us. He cares so deeply about us. He made us in his image. 
oh my goodness, silence is one of the, one of the things that, and th- these things, they don't just keep shame alive, they let shame grow. Does that make sense? Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Judgment, those are the uns for me. So the others, other people can give us these judgments. We can give them to ourselves. The world gives it to us. The devil gives it to us. These are the, I'm unwanted, I'm unworthy, I'm uncherished, I'm unlovely, I'm unnecessary. All the uns, the judgments about ourselves or others. Um, it, it, judgment to me is the most brutal, the most brutal uh, breeding ground for shame is judgment. Even hearing somebody else judge somebody else pour shame out on everybody. Like if you're with somebody walking down the grocery store aisle and they say, oh, see that person over there that's dot, 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 like shaming them. Like the people with them is like, oh my gosh, I hope I don't do that. I probably do do that. I'm probably doing it right now. Like that's the shame spiral that we can like, that judgments can throw up all over everybody. The fourth thing um, about shame is just uh, like a bonus. So these three things, secrecy, silence, and judgment. The fourth thing about shame is, is a response that we can have to shame, and that's escape. So <laughs> if you are like me and have had shame kind of dumped on you from the time you were super little, you have to get real creative in your little tiny brain and think of a way to contain that shame. And friends, that is with addiction. I laugh because it's terrible. It's addiction. Escape, escape can come in lots of forms, but one of the major containers for shame is addiction. So instead of letting that, like it's like, can you, if you can imagine like shame pieces are on your back, like little things of shame are kind of hanging on, like, oh, you're unworthy, you're unloved, you're, you're unlovely, whatever. And then it becomes too much, like seven or eight or nine. You can't, I can only carry like two bags. So you can only carry like a couple and then you have to get like a backpack for it. That's what an addiction is, is it's like a container. And that thing can grow and grow and grow and then you've got like luggage that you're lugging around with your, with your addiction that you're escaping shame. And the way it's escaping shame is, is that it's projecting out the shame that I was feeling about myself onto a behavior or onto whatever it is. So now the shame is now kind of it's kind of one re- once removed. I'm still ashamed. It's like a layer of shame. It's terrible. I'm still ashamed of my addiction, but at least it's not me. Does that make sense? But w- then we incorporate with it, and it it's kind of comes and goes. But that addiction is a, is a container for shame. Um, I just want to do a little shame exercise I learned in one of my trainings with you. And you can, just, you can either use paper and pen or just think through this with me. But it's a way that you can identify when you're feeling shame and then go to the solution, which we are going to get to. Praise God, we're going to get to the solution. So this shame exercise, you can grab one of the major areas that people experience shame in, and that's body, work, parenting, or relationships. You can just kind of think about one of those areas in your life that you might be inclined to experience shame. Those are all super normal areas that that humans experience shame. And here's... so. Think about, if you can, what shame physically feels like in your body. And this is all to be helpful so that you can go to the solution, which we're going to get to. So shame physically, how does that show up in my body? Do I get, like, flushed? Do I feel warm? Is it in my, is it in my head or face or, or gut? Where do I feel it in my body? Here's a second question. I know I'm in shame when... For me, I have that container problem. So I know I'm in shame when I go to that thing that I don't want to do, that addictive behavior. I know I'm in shame when. It could be different for you. The third question, super. When I answered these questions for myself, I was shocked at how helpful they were. If I could taste shame, what would it taste like? For me, I want to give you time to answer it for you, but for me, like the, the, the word that came to mind was dirt. I don't think I've ate dirt in my life. <laughs> but I think beets taste like dirt. Sorry. Sorry for the beet lovers. 
I think beets taste like dirt. So, <laughs> so shame tastes like beets, whatever. <laughs> if I could, so number four, if I could smell shame, what would it smell like? These are just like interesting things to help us notice when we are in shame. Number five, if I could touch shame, what would it feel like? If I could touch it, what would it feel like? <clears throat> My answer was like um, sandpaper, like just like a ugh, itchy, gritty something. So um, we had this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful missional community to foster families. Um, for about eight years, we, we invited people to care for foster families with us by doing once a month pizza party. I might have told you a little bit about it last time. Um, I was always so careful to say kids that reside in foster homes, that the home is the foster home, that the, even the parents can be foster parents. But that word for a kiddo that lives in a foster home, when, it, when they have that identity of foster kid, sometimes that can be attached to a lot of shame. What's interesting about that, it's so, so if, if, there's any, if there's any people that have experienced living in foster, in a, in a foster home, I'm, I'm hoping to be gentle, because um, I know that's hard. But what's interesting about when a kiddo needs to um, be in a safe place, in a, in a home to care for them, it's because of nothing they did, not one thing. Nothing they did put them in a home that cares for them. Nothing. It was simply this fact, and I, I, like, I liken this to the guilt idea of like, the person that was supposed to be able to care for them can't. They don't have the resources or support, or sometimes they can't even care for themselves, like let alone another human. They just, they just simply can't. And so this little person has to go into a place of safety and provision and whatnot because that person that was supposed to care for them can't. It's, it's very simple, if we can, try to put it in that non-judgment category of this is just the facts of what happened. They weren't able to be cared for, and now they're living in a home that presumably could care for them. Please, God, please, God, make all foster homes safe. So there's a lot of shame associated with this that is un unnecessary, just like all of our shame, right? It's not their fault. Um, so when we invited these kids into this fun night, we did a pizza party, we did games, we did fun. When it started, it was really, really important to the leaders of this community to join them, to be with them, to not be like sitting up here as like a healthy, smart adult that knows the right thing, but to be like one person, like to be like, hey, we know what it's like to, to need love and belonging and provision. And so it was very important for us to like sit and eat dinner with them. I would, I would, tell, I would tell everybody there that, hey, if you don't want to eat a piece of pizza, because it was not great. I mean, I don't know, Little Caesars, Domino's. If you own Little Caesars or Domino's and you're watching, it's amazing pizza. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I would just say like sit there and take a bite with them. Like join them on a human level. And this is to kind of create that withness that we are gonna talk about, which is the solution to shame. I have a little video for you. Um, I don't wanna get ahead of myself. I have a little video for you that, I would sh that we would show to the volunteers. There was probably about 50, come or go. We did it for eight years, it was beautiful and amazing. And there was 30 to 60 people that we would all get together and do little trainings and then invite all these kiddos that live in foster homes to have this party. So I would show this video once a year at least, if not twice a year, so that we can kind of get what it means um, to have empathy. So can we show that now? Thanks, guys. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. 
recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? <laughs> um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. It's a good one, right? It's like, uh, I try to watch it at least once a year. <laughs> so that event, it started with so much. Like, how do you talk to a kiddo that wants to talk about that they haven't seen their dad in XYZ months? How do you talk to a kiddo about, you know, what they're experiencing or what they used to experience, the, the lack of, you know, whatever they didn't have? Um, just as shame needs silence, secrecy, and judgment to grow, shame needs empathy. It just takes it away. You could feel it even in that little cartoon, the empathy of it. So... How is it possible that empathy destroys shame? The tendency to hide and isolate and be alone and the tendency to be with and be vulnerable and, and experience someone's empathy. I was looking at this in Romans 7. I've, I love, in my own shame journey, in my own renewed identity as a child of God, as belonging to Jesus, Romans 7, 24 has always stuck out to me. This is Paul's words, and he says, I've tried everything. Notice the word I've. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? And the answer, this is the very next verse that Paul writes, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. And I never could understand that because I was looking for like a solution within myself to do myself, to take care of myself alone so that nobody could hear about my shame, okay? And I love that Paul says, I've tried everything. I need to look for someone else to help me. I need that person. I need that empathetic ear Connection is what helps me be seen. It helps me. It's so funny when, when you just shoot right back to the garden when Adam was alone and then God gave him Eve. Like, isn't that just fascinating that he needed someone? I really believe that he needed someone to empathize. And then who do we get on the scene? God created his people that he loves, that he knows, and they mess it up, of course, within the first three chapters. Hello. Of course, because we're human. And who does he send? Did that bear remind you of anybody? Yes, somebody said it. Oh my gosh, it's a Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. 
Jesus is the great empathizer. I know. I know. He's the great empathizer. Did you see that bear? Oh. Sorry. <laughs> He's the great empathizer. Jesus is the great empathizer. Like God didn't leave us alone in struggling and suffering and in shame. He came down in the garden and, and set the, the protective boundaries. And then he made a solution to all of our problems by coming down himself. So we're going to just talk for a minute about Jesus real quick. <laughs> real quick. He was born, you guys, incarnate, God incarnate with us. He made us in his image, and then he made himself in ours. Can you believe that? I, I, that blows my mind. He made us in his image in the beautiful, glorious way. We fell we mess up, we struggle, we live in shame. And so then he did the second thing. He made himself in ours. How wild is that? That he would come down and say, you know what? I want to have so much empathy with these people. I'm going to live with them. I'm going to suffer the world with them. And I'm going to suffer ultimately to death. Crazy, right? Oh, yeah. So he was born, he's with us. In John 1, we see he already, he already made himself, this is my note, he already made us like himself and now he's making himself like us. In John 1, the, world be, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That we could be called sons and daughters of God. I, I look at Jesus' story in Mark 10 in the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler comes to him and he's so proud, he's like, hey, I've done all the things, I'm really great, uh, tell me I'm great, <laughs> Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, cool, there's always room for growth. You could sell what you own and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler's like, oh, no, I really can't, I really can't do that. And Jesus, what does it say? Jesus looked at him and had pity. Like he was sad, it made him sad that the rich young ruler walked away. The woman caught in adultery, Oh my gosh, John 7, 53. So she's pulled out in front of Jesus and they are gonna kill her. They are literally gonna kill her. And I love this story because we see the compassion of Jesus. And of course, this circumstance, it doesn't, he doesn't have to experience the exact circumstance to have empathy. What he says, which is brilliant, which saves her life, is if you have not sinned, go ahead and throw the first rock. He was, he was really implying this, I don't wanna be... Uh, it's, it's a hard scene. I'm not trying to take it lightly. Uh, it's terrible. But he was like, that just can be the first rock and then everyone else can throw them. Does that make sense? Like, it's creepy, right? Like, he's like, hey, if you're without sin, you chuck the first one. He saved her life, you guys, by saying that, by being who he was, joining us in the world, empathizing with who we are and our struggle and our shame. And then he saves her life before he tells her to go and leave her life of sin. Let's just not, I, I feel like too many people jump to like, he corrected her, he told her not to sin anymore. Yes, but first he saved her life. It's beautiful. Um, okay, I have time. So I wanna show you this because sometimes when we look at God and we look at, G oh, and the cross, the cross was the ultimate place of empathy. Joining us in death, that is who, what God would do that, right? Like joining us to a place of suffering that he would be killed, tortured and killed. It's so sad, I hate that, I hate the story. Oh sorry Jen, I'm like gonna, you know, move it closer, but I don't know why. <laughs> I'm compelled to move it closer to you, I want to bring it down there. Um, no, no, I'm good, I, I think about the people online too. So. So we get confused because we look at God and we look at Jesus and we might get a little bit confused. We don't often see him, we don't see our shame very well and we don't see the great empathizer. And so um, we might do this when it comes to our renewed identity. This is the Father, this is our identity, and this is our obedience or like living or acting, or acting as, as children of God which is, you know, our goal when we find out that there's a God who knows and loves us. So sometimes we get really confused, and this happens quite regularly. You might, you might yourself see this, or you might see it in others, that we look to the Father, and we feel fear. We feel afraid, because we're like, oh my gosh, God is big and strong and smart and made everything, and I'm little and weak and like we almost like sense our own humility, but we don't, maybe we don't see it like that. And so our obedience happens out of fear. 
And then when we look to who we are, our identity, we experience that as like slavery. We're like, we have some sort of slave driver father. Like that's, that's that, like, oh, I have to perform. I have to perform because I'm afraid of God. And then when we look back to God in a sense of our identity of who we are, we feel shame because we know we can't measure up. We know we can't measure up, even if we do lots of little good things. We know like deep in our hearts, our, if we're honest and if we've had, <laughs> I was gonna say if we've had enough therapy, <laughs> just kidding, but also maybe not, I don't know. Um, I've had a lot. <laughs> um, we look back to God and feel shame because we know there's core things wrong with us. We see our ugliness, right? So this is how sometimes people get confused about their identity as yours, as God's, as I'm yours. I am so yours, and that knowledge makes me feel like I'm with somebody. I have, I have a parent. I have belonging. I have, I'm not unloved and unworthy. I am, I am with a whole family of God. I'm, I'm with. So the, re- the, the correct way, oh, which is so beautiful because it all depends on God, it depends on his grace. He looks at us with grace. We don't have to look at him with fear. He looks at us with grace. And our identity as made in the image of God people is solid in him. He, he looks at us, he goes, hey, I know you screwed up. I know. I know you ate the fruit that I told you not to eat. I know you did that. I made you. I love you. I'm going to make a way for, for me and you to be okay. So he looks at us with grace. Loves us like crazy. And so then we get to obey out of freedom. We're free to do what he asks because we know he has good things for us. I want to give. I want to be generous. I want to, I want to, I would love for my life to be sanctified. I would like holiness and righteousness. Like I want to do the obedient things that God has for me because he loves me. There's grace. So yes, I gave it away. So you look back to the father and you have love. Which kind of, I like these words together because perfect love is what drives out fear. And grace is the opposite of shame. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, because when Jason asked me to talk about a renewed identity and, and specifically about shame, I, I was like, I start praying immediately whenever I get asked to speak somewhere. And I was like, okay, God, are you going to have me share that story? <laughs> And I was like, I like, I wait, because I don't want to like, I don't, I don't try to throw it out there like willy-nilly. I really pray about what God would have me share. And the topic was just so perfect. I just want to tell you this little story about myself. Um, I mentioned when I, I grew up a, a survivor. <laughs> that is not how it felt when I was young. But I didn't know God. My family did not know God. And th- I didn't know that there was a God who knows me and made me and loves me. And I coped for a very long time with the baggage of my addiction for a very long time and honestly still struggle. And so I, I had my given name when I, so, so cool, because renewed identity. My given name, when I was 28 years old, I started, I, I met the Lord at 18. About 10 years later, um, I met my counselor. <laughs> And um, that was totally God-directed. And I went to my counselor, and I started learning and uncovering all these spaces of shame and pain and abuse and neglect and terrible things. And I felt this sense from God that I, that I needed a new name. And I was super weirded out by it. I took like a year of like, my, na- my given name was Jody at birth. And my name was Jody Ann. And I remember, I just started journaling. I would journal a lot to God in those days. I would just journal and talk to God in my journal. And I, w- I would write out D. Ann, Joe Ann, I would, for like a year. And I was married to my husband. You know, we, I got married super young. And so I was just like, I know. So I was talking to him about my experience with grace from shame. And I told him, like, what, what felt like it was like inside of me was this like, like horrible, like hateful voice that, that my name sounded like a curse word or a swear. Like it sounded like 
It just, it just housed so much hate, so much shame. And I told him it was like it was like looking out my eyes. I know that sounds really, it's obviously a deliverance story, yes. <laughs> I felt like it was looking out of my eyes. And my husband was like, well, what is it? What's your experience now? And I'd been writing, writing like, okay, God, do you want my name changed? Like, what do you want? This is weird. Like, I would, you know, having that dialogue for about a year. And my husband asked me, like, what does it feel now? And I said, well, now it feels like it's outside of me. That hateful voice, it might be looking at me. It still wants to steal, kill, and destroy me. It still wants to devour me. But it's not coming from me, which was just incredibly good news. And so my husband, like, got out his, his phone and was like, yeah, like, I totally get, like, let's, like, you're Joe D, so how about Annie? Anne was my middle name. He's like, and I just felt like God cared for me so much with that conversation with my husband that was just like, oh, yeah, Annie. And I was 28 years old, and I went through the <laughs> awkward business of telling people to call, please call me Annie. And, you know, some could roll with it, and some really struggled. <laughs> but there was so much shame in my identity growing up and apart from God. And then when God entered my mess, when he took on my sin and my struggle and my shame, and he took it to the cross, and I got to learn about that and grow in that, I, I couldn't, he led me to that. And it was so, so awkward and beautiful and lovely. And my renewed identity was that of grace. Anne means grace. I had it all along. My parents gave me the name, Jody Ann. I had the name Grace all along. And God reaffirmed, you're, you're Annie. Like, the, the word is grace, not shame. So that process was really special and really long. And it really was about Jesus being my great empathizer. When he, when he, in, through my, you know, process of like taking my sin and shame and giving it to God, he took it. And, and there's scriptures, we could reference a million of them that talk about how he took that. He took that and bore that sin upon himself. That's his great empathy. So there's a, a, a imagery that I think I might have shared a little bit about when I was here last time that I love to invite you to. And this, again, check out if you want. No, no worries here. But I just want to, um, to do with you about that list of shame that we talked about, the smell, the taste, the, you know, the areas in your life. So I just want to talk you through a visualization with Jesus as the great empathizer for your, for your sin, for your shame, for your for your brokenness, for whatever word you want to call it, anything. He's, he's so good. He so loves you. And so if you would just close your eyes with me. Jesus is standing in front of you. <laughs> the word made flesh, you guys. <laughs> he didn't leave us struggling and alone. He came and, and belonged to us. He made us in his image, and then he made himself in ours. Wow. Son of man. And he's standing in front of you, and he knows everything. He knows every, every sin committed against you. He knows every maladjustment you've made to cover up shame. He knows every point of pain. And he stands there, and his face is one of compassion. His face is one of um, love. His face is one of of that bear climbing down into that hole and sitting with that, that little fox. That's his face to you. And I want you, if you can, if you want to. He's got his hands um, stretched out. This is exactly what I experienced. He had his, his, his hands stretched out to you. And he wants to take those yucky, yucky parts. He wants to take that, that shame, that secret, that silence, that judgment, and he will hold it. And he will take it and put it where it belongs. It is not, it's not in you and it's not in him. It's actually in the depths of hell. He wants to take that. Imagine him taking that from you. You've placed him in his arms one at a time. List those things. His face is of compassion towards you. 
And he takes those things and he puts them aside or in a trash can or in a bucket or in a box. He has those. He's going to redeem them. He's going to use them in your life. He's going to use them to connect with others. He's going to use them to say a great, like, I get it. I get it, man. I also suffered. I also suffered the sins of others. I also, I also lived <laughs> in a really rough world. I know what it's like. You can pray with me. God, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you that we belong to you, that we serve you, that we honor you, that we depend on you, that we benefit from you, that we get good things from you. God, thank you so much that you are the great empathizer and that you and that you deal with our shame so, so graciously, so gently, and you take on all of the work on yourself because you know that we're too weak to do it. God, we love you. We're so grateful to you. Thank you for each other. Thank you for the gift of others. And thank you so much, so much for sending your son, for becoming one of us, for making us in your image and then making you yourself in ours. It's just wild. I'm yours, God. We're yours. In Jesus' name, amen.